When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. A squeeze of lemon, a pinch of cinnamon, and just a bit more sugar. Well, is it good? Oh, it's too soon to tell. We'll only really know once it's set. True of Marmalade and true of the year in movies, too. Ben Wishaw's Paddington Bear with Brendan Gleeson's Knuckles McGinty. And that clip from Paddington 2, a bit of a disappointment at the box office, but widely adored by curmudgeonly critics like ourselves, Josh. Indeed. Brendan Gleeson, perhaps best supporting actor. He's up to 2018. There. Oh, yeah. Best name for sure. This week on the show, Adam and I see how the movie year is cooking up with our top five films of 2018 so far. And we'll just have to see if there's any room for Marmalade Junkie on our list. Don't you dare talk about Paddington like that. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting and welcome back to Chicago for us. We are a day returned from our fourth annual jaunt to Spring Green, Wisconsin. I think it might be the fourth. I think yeah. it was our fourth trip there. We brought our families. We go meet our esteemed producer, Sam Van Hallgren, and hang out with his family, and we get to see some theater. Yeah, we're some upping the play theater. count. This year we That's took true. in two. Two in one day. Wow. I thought that might burn you out a little, Josh, but you, you hung um, with it. Exit the King burned me out. I mean, it was good, Ionesco. but wow, yeah. that's some heavy stuff to end your night heavy, with. Heavy, heavy, heavy. I mean, it's basically a play made for me. It knows it's a play, and it's completely about death. Yep. Like, And not just completely about death in the way a movie like All That Jazz is about death. No, this is really about the process of dying. That's why it's bleak. And as Debbie and I were talking about later, pointedly, the drawn out process. Oh yeah. I mean that's all Yeah, there's part about four endings. Yes, of what's <laughs> intentionally going on again, really well done production, but it rings you out. Yeah, I guess Jeffrey Rush did that on Broadway really? recently, okay. a revival of it because if you notice, they had apparently added to it. I don't know who does these things, but there were very modern references in our play, but I believe the original Ionesco is from like the 60s. So it's something Sounds that right. gets updated from time to time. We saw As You Like It. We do have to see some Shakespeare, of course, at APT. That was great. And then we just hung out and let our kids play in the river. Yeah, the peaceful Wisconsin River already seems so far away. It really does. <laughs> it was like 24 hours ago. Well, I left one of my kids there. We liked the theater so much, we just <laughs> left her there. Oh, that was on purpose. Yeah. Okay. It was actually. It wasn't one of these, do we have everyone halfway home to Chicago? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Okay. We left her there at theater camp. We'll see how Sophie does at her first theater camp, and we'll see if she comes back and wants to devote her life to 
the stage. She might, and she might not want to come back. Just stay in the woods there, right, with American Players Theater for the yes, rest of her she life. Might. So a year ago, we were in Spring Green, and we were recording live at the Great Arcadia Bookstore mm-hmm. our top five films of the year so far. We had two picks in common on that list: Jordan Peele's Get Out and David Lowry's A Ghost Story. Now we do have 2018's critically acclaimed blockbuster that directly confronts the subject of race. Black Panther, though, there may just be a couple of other films that directly confront the topic of race that make our list. The question for you, Josh, is what is going to be this year's Rooney Mara devouring a pie in one sitting movie? We're kind of back to Paddington 2, aren't we? Yeah, maybe Devouring so. the marmalade. I there think we've go. got it. I think Paddington 2 is the answer to everything. Trauma, <laughs> grief, violence, all pretty well represented on last year's list. We'll see if any themes reveal themselves this year as we share our top five films of 2018 so far. We'll also see how listeners came out on the question of the best of the year. And we're going to jump right in with our number five picks. I'd ask you what criteria you use, but this isn't a normal top five that requires such criteria. Did you have any kind of special approach to it this year, Josh, or just went with what your gut told you? No, it's my working top 10 list as things stand right now. And it's kind of fun. This list gives us an opportunity to do what we also do at the end of the year is cram, right? Cram as much as we can with the stuff that we were interested in earlier in the year and just didn't have time for or get to. Stuff that's been critically praised Mm -hmm. that we hadn't seen and we want to be able to weigh in on. One way I did that was on Twitter and Facebook, just asked listeners, what's the one title I haven't seen that I really need to see? And to my delight... (laughs) A title popped up I wouldn't have expected, but one that I had on my working list of things to catch up with, Game Night. Number five. It's my number five because I did sit down to watch it. I'd been meaning to, and the more people who threw it out there as one I really needed to see, I thought, okay, that's going up high on the catch-up list. So sat down and watched it. I pretty much laughed throughout. Yeah. I mean, this thing has such a high ratio of gags to laugh quotient. Like Mm -hmm. they almost all pay off really well. I don't think there's much of a lull at all in it, even though it goes to some pretty exaggerated places in the final third. Oh, yeah. Essentially, if there are other listeners who aren't familiar with it, this is the Jason Bateman, Rachel McAdams ensemble comedy. They're the main characters, but it's so generous to the rest of the cast. And it's basically about a weekly gathering among friends that does get out of control. And I, that's one of the things I liked about it is McAdams and Bateman's chemistry together and how this movie, it's written and directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, how it doesn't pit them against each other like so many marriage-involved comedies do mm-hmm. where that's going to be the antagonism, right, is between the husband and wife and we'll get them together at the end. But for much of the movie, they're going to have to be apart. Right. I love how these two are on the same team the whole time. They share a killer competitive streak. Mm-hmm. A really smart opening montage traces that across the years, how they met. And it follows them through the movie that way. They're a team. They amuse each other. They The best scene, I won't explain why I'd give it away. I think the best scene I can't scene wait to hear be, this because I have a clear favorite scene. Okay. It's the funniest anyway. Does it involve the two of them? Oh, yeah. Okay. The bullet removal scene for yes, me in absolutely. the alley. In the alleyway. That's it. <laughs> we, Sarah and I lost it. It was, it was so good. It's like this gross out vaudeville routine. It is. And I love how basically Jason Bateman has a bullet. She's trying to remove it. She has no idea what she's doing, but he's so encouraging. He, yeah. He's like, you can do it, honey. And then she, it's just, we're probably ruining <laughs> well, it. It's so also, watch game night. <laughs> it is the fact that they are doing that gross out thing that 
we all have that involuntary reaction when someone <laughs> starts to gag like they might throw up. And really, Bateman and McAdams just play it perfectly. Oh, they're so good in this. Oh, it's easy. Annie, uh, the famous actor that we met at the airport about eight years ago. Who? Only actor we've ever met at an airport who's famous. Bobby Flay? Not an actor. This fellow was in front of us at the Sabaro. We were wondering why he wasn't in the first class lounge. Oh, yes, yes. Who was that? God damn it. Max, there's a whole room of people to help you out here. Who's us? Good point. Uh, the, the, he was an Incredible Hulk. Eric, Eric Banner. Other one. Um, Mark Ruffalo? Other one. Lou Ferrigno. Holy sh Primal fear. Richard Gere never played the Incredible Hulk. Time. Ned Norton. Oh, oh sh but let me mention real quickly this supporting cast because these other friends who come to play, they're all good. They yes. get their own little stories. We won't go into all of them, but Lamorne Morris, Kylie Bunbury, Billy Magnuson, Sharon Hogan, and then we have to mention Kyle Chandler yes. showing some decent comic chops of as the Bateman character's older brother. And Adam, I knew this was going to sell you. I didn't want to, you maybe were already aware he was in this movie, but I didn't want to spoil it. I wanted you to have the surprise because I didn't know going in. Jesse Plemons. Oh, yeah. The beloved by I us. I mean, he almost Jesse steals Plemons. the movie. He's, oh, I think he might. He probably does. He's so good as this supporting character that you, you know, one, one of those guys, better than one of those guys, but oh, he's yeah. in so much stuff. He's a great actor. Great, serious supporting character actor. Possibly the funniest thing in game night as this neighbor who gets disinvited from game night, uh, a cop, and uh, doesn't take it too well. Just one other thing I want to say about it, why it did launch onto my list at number five. I think this is really visually inventive for a comedy. It has that opening montage I mentioned where they kind of track through a series of different games across the years and traces Max and Annie's, the main character's relationship. But also mm -hmm. how about those shots of – a suburban street from far above that looks like a game board, like Life or sure, something, like, or Monopoly. Sure. The miniatures they and use. And then, yeah, they use miniatures, but then it kind of zooms down seamlessly yes. into an actual suburban street. There's, there's something similar going on with another movie I consider for my list, Hereditary, but a completely different milieu. But they use a lot of visual ingenuity in this movie. And it, you know, it does become, there's nothing too serious going mm -hmm. on here. But it does become kind of a funny spoof of middle class malaise and like the, totally. the ways you will try to, to fill a boring, mundane life and how seriously you can take things that shouldn't yeah. be taking too seriously. And then what happens if it does get out of control? So really glad that I saw Game Night. Anyone else has not seen it yet. It lives up to all the good word of mouth you've probably heard. Yeah, not going to make my top five. And I'm not sure it's in my top 10 right now, but that was the movie that we drove home from Wisconsin and I made sure I made time for after finding out that it was going to make your list. And how about as you're talking about good visual moments, that one extended take, the amazing choreography with the egg. Yes. That's pretty the remarkable. Back and forth. Yeah, the back Probably and forth. Probably a lot of cheating. Oh. But they're essentially playing football with I'm a sure. Fabergé yeah, egg. Yeah, with and... eight or 10 or 12 people involved, yes. ultimately. <laughs> I thought that was really great. It is. Jesse Plemons, I knew, had some comic chops, certainly from other people. A movie I saw him in a few years ago, very different type of character in this movie. And I'm with you. One of the things I really enjoyed about it is it made me realize how infrequently we see happy married couples on screen. Yeah. Right. They have to be the minority. And I suppose that's because there's very rarely any good conflict there. But there is conflict here. And I am glad to hear that that was your favorite scene as well, though. The single best moment 
in terms of an acting moment in the film. And I've seen people on Twitter point to Rachel McAdams in a scene near the end of the film when she says, oh, no, he died. They've singled that out as like her best line reading. But honestly, the best moment in the film happens right before that, where I'll just say there's this imposing thug and her life is in danger. And she tries to plead for her life by saying falsely that I have kids at home. And he says, not with that ass, you don't. And the reaction, reaction where then we get how flattered she is in the moment. She gives it a moment of that. It's brilliant. She's so great. She's so great. The other scene that I did consider, though, quickly, the bribing scene. Won't go into detail, but how long they play that out when right. Billy Magnuson tries to <laughs> Billy bribe. Magnuson's a wonder in this oh, he's film. he's great. They're all really consistently good. I'd watch an entire film of Lamorne Morris doing his Denzel Washington impression. <laughs> yes. That's what, I would. That's a good example, though, Adam. Like, again, we won't spoil it, but the payoff you get to that bit that they set up and they yes. continue to get laughs from yes. and then it has just such a great punch. It line. really does. <laughs> okay, going from game night in the complete opposite yes. direction. Let's, let's bring get, things down. Let's get serious Stop now. laughing. Yeah. For my number five, it's a movie that was recommended to me by our friend Scott Tobias, the great critic who's a frequent guest here on the show and, of course, is one of the co-hosts of the Next Picture Show podcast. This is my favorite of the three films, I'd say, this year that are explicitly about race. Black Panther, of course, you could throw in the conversation, but one of them being The King, which I talked about last week a little bit, the Eugene Jarecki documentary, and, of course, Sorry to Bother You, the new film from Boots Riley. This is called Did You Wonder Who Fired the Gun? And all three films I just mentioned are experimental in some unique ways. I'd say that Sorry to Bother You and this movie more so and Wonder the most. This is a movie that debuted at Sundance back in January 2017, and it also played at True False that year. And attendees of both of those fests got to watch the movie with the filmmaker, Travis Wilkerson, who is a performance artist and filmmaker that I was otherwise not familiar with. They got to watch it with him there, not just to do a Q&A afterwards, but he actually performed the narration of the film live. And the narration is a dominant part of this movie. It's really there from start to finish. And when I say that Travis Wilkerson is the filmmaker, he wrote, directed, shot, edited, recorded the sound, and performed the score in addition to doing the narration on this film that takes a look at his own haunted legacy. Back in 1946, his great-grandfather, a man named S.E. Branch, killed a black man in rural Alabama. And this had just been part of the family lore that he shot this man in the store that he owned and operated and got away with it. And Wilkerson, in light of the Trayvon Martin case and some other similar cases, decided that he had to explore that legacy. And he goes back to Dothan, Alabama to research it. Scott, in a written review, I think he wrote it for NPR.org, he wrote, The extraordinary power of seeing Wilkerson on stage, swelling with anger and raw emotion, cannot be reproduced in the version he's releasing to theaters, but it comes much closer than expected. Through this personal journey, Wilkerson accesses America's heart of darkness. So obviously that kind of raw emotion that you might get when the filmmaker is there going through those emotions right in front of you. Here it's more tempered by design. I would describe it as actually more of a drone, his narration. And that's part of the hypnotic nature of this film. But the rage is still there. Have you ever been in a place that just feels like something terrible happened there? I know it doesn't make logical sense. But you feel it. In Branch's Grocery. 
Most of the store has been transformed, but the old counter is still there. My mom says S.E. always kept four things under that counter. Two sets of brass knuckles, a bullwhip, and a loaded revolver. The rage in his voice is undeniable. And then we get sections sometimes that are punctuated by these little interludes where we just see the text on screen to some drumline type music that say, say his name or say her name. And we see names like Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland. Those appear on the screen, other African-Americans killed by white people who got away with it. And those interstitials are appropriate because this film is in its own way, agitprop. It's meant to provoke. But more than that, It's not a murder mystery, really, because we know that his great-grandfather did it, and you're not really learning anything surprising about his great-grandfather along the way. Everything he kind of thought to be true about him is pretty much true. The real power of the movie, though, Josh, is in the way it efforts to reclaim the identity of this man who was murdered, to give him the legacy that was wiped away so callously and seemingly completely while never losing sight of the fact that Wilkerson himself is part of the legacy of the man who committed the callous act. His line went on. Travis Wilkerson is here today only because of the benefits of this white man and that culture that allowed him to continue with his life and his family to go on. And yet you've got this stark contrast and Wilkerson aims to underline that stark contrast. The last 10 minutes or so of this film is one continuous shot and it is so powerful with the combination of the narration and the music and the way the frame is tinted and the sky is this ominous dark red with the dark trees against this road that we are traveling down and really not sure at all we want to go down it. I would say it's got to be a golden brick contender. Maybe some people could quibble because I think I looked up Wilkerson and he's in his late 40s and he's he's done at least three or four other films but as I said, I had never heard of him yeah. until this project. I'm checking that right now because as you were talking, it sounded like it certainly met a lot of the criteria, criteria we have for The Golden Brick. It looks like he does have about six other films he's made, a handful of documentaries, mostly documentaries, but certainly seems to meet that sort of visionary, Vision. experimental totally. quality that we're looking for and under the radar as well because it has not been seen by me. And unfortunately, it's not going to be seen by many people, at least not right now. And actually, I was having some trouble the past couple of days getting on the Grasshopper Film website to get more information about screenings. But I want to say it played in some theaters and very limited release back in maybe March of this year. That's when you'll find reviews, either March or May. You'll see some reviews that were written of the film at that time. But otherwise, it's not in theaters any longer. It's not as far as I'm aware, streaming anywhere and not on DVD yet either. So if we get more information about it, we will certainly share it. But right now, one people may have to wait for, and it's worth it. Before we get to our number four choices, or actually to help us set up our number four choices, we are going to share the results of the recent film spotting poll. Been up for a couple of weeks. We asked you to name the best film of the year so far. We gave you eight options. Those options were Annihilation, Black Panther, First Reformed, Hereditary, Isle of Dogs, Paddington 2, A Quiet Place, The Writer, or we, of course, gave you other you could choose from any other film you've seen so far this year. Josh, how did it come out? Well, in last place, and I'm going to guess by virtue of it not being seen by many listeners because it didn't get a very wide release, but is The Writer that received 5%. Following that, though, with only 6% is A Quiet Place, which was actually a pretty big hit 
if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So not many people voting for that in terms of best of the year so far, however. Black Panther is there at 8%, and then Paddington 2 with 9% of the vote. Willie Evans wrote in, the dismissal of Paddington 2 is tragic because if the name Wes Anderson had appeared somewhere on the poster, this perfectly stylized, heartwarming, and beautifully executed film would be rightfully championed as one of the best films of the decade. Wow. Is that, is that a shot there? Because the thing about Paddington a shot 2, at critics. both films is very heavily owe a debt to Wes Anderson in ways that I admire. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's ripping off at all, but... I'm the one who said it's a better film than Grand Budapest Hotel, remember, well, though. Well, there's no need to bring up that nonsense. <laughs> it is, though. Next, we have Hereditary getting 10% of the vote. And David Healy in Springfield, Missouri, wrote in about Hereditary. I've always enjoyed the horror genre, but it is becoming increasingly difficult to find horror films that shock me and take unexpected turns. Hereditary did both. Let's speak a little bit more nicely about Wes Anderson now here because his Isle of Dogs came in next with 11% of the vote. Lucy Morris Baird writes, perhaps because it was the last film that I watched, perhaps because I love sushi and dogs, or maybe just because Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs is the film that had me feeling such a thrill of excitement that I wanted to call everyone I know and tell them to watch it immediately. I laughed, I cried, and I followed intently as a group of dogs told this moving story, cleverly peppered with social and political commentary while a superb soundtrack held the beat, not to mention the massive raising of the stop-motion bar, a masterpiece this is on all levels. There you go, Lucy. We did offer the other category in the poll, and that received 15% of the vote. Connor McCabe went that way, and his choice was Sorry to Bother You. Although divisive, it's my current choice for favorite film thus far. In a world of simple, great movies, it was excellent to see a complicated, stellar one. I'm incredibly excited by Boots Riley's ambition and cannot wait to see more. Randy R. in Annapolis, Maryland also picked other Won't You Be My Neighbor was just pure joy and portrays the best of humanity. We could really use Fred Rogers today. Dan from New Zealand also weighed in. It's been a while since I last threw my vote away by selecting other, but The Death of Stalin is easily my pick of best of 2018 so far. Watch it. Alex Goes chimed in as well. First Reformed is the best film included on the poll. However, 24 Frames, the final film from director Abbas Kiarostami, is the best movie released in 2018. It's a reminder of Godard's quote, film begins with D.W. Griffith and ends. With a boss, Kiristami. Oh, and that hurts, Alex. I know we, we wanted both to see it. Wanted to track down. Had difficulty even finding a place to see it. To now that it's in to that, solicit a link. Now that we it's in track that it down. gap between yes. theatrical release and streaming or DVD. Yeah. Some other popular other choices were Leave No Trace, the new film from Deborah Granick and Bo Burnham's Eighth Grade, which we talked about last week on the show. Also heard from the writer director Bo Burnham. That brings us, Josh, up to the runner up in the poll and. A listener already mentioned it. First Reformed, which got 17% of the vote. Jacob Eddy said, First Reformed expanded to my area at the end of June, a deeply dark time for the world as well as me personally. I haven't seen a movie that so accurately expresses despair at the state of the world and the way it can overtake your life. I still haven't made up my mind with regards to the ending, but it's certainly the best film I've seen all year and probably the most 2018 film I've seen as well. Interesting question. Maybe a completely different question than the one we're attempting to answer with our top five films of the year so far. Listeners, however, at number one, went with Alex Garland's Annihilation. Close, but 19% of the vote went to his sophomore film as both a writer and director. And Josh, Annihilation is my number four. So I am with 
listeners on this choice. This is the Natalie Portman film that also stars Oscar Isaac. She plays a biologist and she has a military background and she's invited to join a mission to try to figure out what happened to her husband, played by Oscar Isaac, who is also a soldier. And basically they have to go into this thing that they're calling the shimmer. They don't know what it is, but People don't come out, or if they do, they don't come out the same, and she goes in with four other female scientists. I did realize in putting together my choices that all five of my films are in some way formally experimental, already touched on, did you wonder who fired the gun? I'm not suggesting that Annihilation is radically different than many other sci-fi films, but here you could probably classify Garland's experiment as how much information can a filmmaker withhold? How many clear answers can a filmmaker withhold and still engage instead of frustrate an audience? It's a movie that I think asks the audience to decode what it all represents just as Garland's scientists have to decode what the shimmer represents. And Keith Geiger, a longtime listener from Ocean City, Maryland, sent in some great comments about it. And this is an email that I think perfectly illustrates the point I just made. He said, it's a movie about death. It's about dying and dealing with the death of loved ones. It's about the death of the earth. It's about living with a life-threatening disease and about caring for loved ones with a life-threatening disease. It's about love and marriage and forgiveness, about lies and what you are willing to do to find absolution and forgiveness, and what you are willing to accept as forgiveness for wrongs done to you. It's a small science fiction movie that tackles the fate of the world, but is concerned with relationships between colleagues, between women, between couples, and with ourselves. It is a suspenseful, frightening sci-fi horror movie that ends with a confounding, beautiful climax that answers just enough questions to leave the viewer satisfied. I believe it's a masterpiece. Is it a masterpiece? Am I crazy? Keith asks. Did the shimmer make me nuts? I fell under the spell of this movie and maybe it altered my DNA in some way. A lot of people fell under the spell of this movie. Obviously, as the poll results show, I was one of those people. And I went back and looked at our mailbag. Josh, we got more emails in response to Annihilation than any other movie we talked about on the show this year. It's that kind of film. I know there are some people out there who did find it extremely frustrating. I know there are some, like you perhaps, that liked it and were engaged with it more than were frustrated, but did feel that a little bit. On the whole, though, so many people, just like Keith, are still wrestling with what Annihilation means. And I think that's a strength of the film. Without a doubt, Annihilation, and Keith's note attests to this, has produced some of the best film writing of the year. Yeah. I have loved going back and wrestling with the movie through other people's takes on it and experiences with it because all those things that Keith listed are in there. Yeah. And so everyone has found their personal hook That's and it. it's led to some really good writing. I think my hesitation might have been, uh, you know, wanting more of a constancy throughout all of those possibilities. But I'll tell you this, Annihilation is on top of the list of films I will be watching again yeah. before we do compile our top 10 because it's one of those mysterious ones that has a very decent shot of absolutely wowing me on a second look. So, For sure. So I can't wait I'm to do that. I'm looking forward to do that as well. And you can do that. All listeners out there, if you didn't see it in theaters, it's out on DVD, it's on iTunes, Amazon Prime, probably a few other places. So my number four pick, as you were talking about, did you wonder who fired the gun, is actually kind of a nice match for that. Yep. Even though it's set in a completely different time, different country, this is Zama, which comes from writer-director Lucretia Martel, you and I know her fairly well now after we did our new Argentine cinema marathon not too long ago. We watched two of her films there. One was La Cienega and the other was 
The Headless Woman. Now, those were contemporary set in Argentina, both of them. Zama is... Well, first of all, to give you a sense of it, it's a colonial ghost story is how I experienced this movie. It's set in a vaguely colonized 17th century South American backwater and centers on the title character, Don Diego de Zama. He's played by Daniel Jimenez Cacho. And this is a guy who... This will sound familiar to you, Adam, from having seen those other films, just lives in a state of constant unease. He wants to be assigned somewhere else, if not returned to Spain. And he looks around him at this new Spain they're trying to build, but failing so awfully, Mm -hmm. but are in denial of that. And he can't quite put his finger on, he still goes through the motions. He doesn't, you know, question the king or this system that he's a part of. This isn't a protest film or even a man's real moral awakening. Like the lead character in The Headless Woman, he doesn't seem capable of even psychologically processing guilt yet, Hmm. but he's physically experiencing it in some way. We talked about in those films how a lot of the indigenous servant class would be in the background Mm -hmm. and then their stories would infiltrate to the foreground plot, which involved the Argentine bourgeoisie. Well, here it's like Martel is going right back into that past at the start, exhuming the country's past and then does unleash a lot of ghosts in the process. There are such spooky images in this movie as Zama seems to float in this place between he's not really like a a conqueror. He's more like this uneasy usurper and it starts to eat away at his soul and you recognize it in the images that Martel provides of, again, a lot of the indigenous people sort of haunting and circling around him mm-hmm. and just making him, if not on the surface, but underneath somewhere dealing with these things. It's also darkly funny, I would say, if that is starting to sound too heavy. <laughs> I mean, and that's probably not a surprise with Martel either. There are moments where Zama gets lost in the bureaucracy that he's a part of, and it almost resembles Terry Gilliam's Brazil in a lot of ways. Daniel Jimenez Cacho is probably going to end up as one of my performances of the year because he is so good at playing this guy as both a, you know, sort of a clown in these regal outfits that don't match the background. But he's also he's bewildered in a way that actually becomes sympathetic. He's a villain in a lot of ways. And then here's what's going to sell you on it, Adam. The last third goes full Herzog. In a way, I'm not going to detail, but basically Zama finds himself outside of this outpost. Okay. Embracing, I don't know if you'd call it the jungle, but the wild. Yeah. I'm with seeing a band. shades of Klaus Kinski in my head uh, right now. And it all starts to come apart psychologically and on the outside in really creepy, again, haunting ways. One of the scenes I won't forget from this year is when they're lost in this swamp, essentially. And as they're sleeping at night, a group of blinded, Indigenous people start walking by and touching their horses and their satchels and eventually their faces, and they just kind of freeze and let them pass by. But instead of feeling like a blessing, it's almost like these touches of accusation, of Hmm. cursing, and then they float on by. Counting Hereditary, one of the creepiest things I've seen this year. Well, it does appear that Zama is scheduled for a DVD release on August 7th. Great. So coming out soon. Yes. And maybe, as you mentioned, both Zama and Hereditary, and I had Did You Wonder Who Fired the Gun on my list, maybe we should go ahead and list our regrets. The movies that you're not going to hear on our list because we 
didn't get a chance to see them. And I've got a top five for you real quick. Number one is Hereditary. I know last week on the show I said I would remedy the fact that I still hadn't seen it. And I lied, apparently. I know that some people are going to assume it's because I'm a big scaredy cat. And of course, I am a little bit dreading the experience of seeing Hereditary. But it really is just a matter of not having a free two hours and seven minutes to get to the theater. It was so much more easy, Josh, to sit at home on my couch and watch Game Night. Yes. And yes, I chose <laughs> and, to do that last night. you're glad night. you did. And I'm glad. Don't at me. Number two, <laughs> I've got The Tale which you can see on HBO starring Laura Dern. I do really want to see that film. Zama is my number three regret. Let the Sunshine In. Claire Denis, yeah, the Denis with one. Juliette Binoche, who you will hear Ethan Hawke in a month and a half on this show talking about the movie he directed, Blaze. He talks about seeing Let the Sunshine In and saying that Juliette Binoche is just a first ballot Hall of Famer. And of course, Ethan Hawke, as with most things, is 100% correct. I really need to see that. And finally... We mentioned it already, the Kiristami film, his final film, 24 Frames. Those are my top five regrets. Yeah, you've hit a couple of mine. The Tale, 24 Frames, Let the Sunshine In. I also, I know this one you have seen, The Death of Stalin, already mentioned. Yes. I need to see that yet. And then this is one our producer, Sam Van Halgren, suggested First Match for Golden Brick Contention. It's about, I believe, a teen girl boxer, if I'm remembering correctly. I've just got on my list of ones I want to check out. That one's actually on Netflix now, so I have no good excuse for that except time. All right, we'll have more to say, I think, on some of those films that were mentioned in our poll when we come back. That's when we'll get to the rest of our top five films of the year so far. Stay with us. Today I miss my workout, but it worked out. Now I'm missing work now, but it worked out. Had to buy a crib for up on my first house. Had my first kid, I love how she turned out. I love how she turned up, even if I'm burnt out. I'ma have so many seeds, I can have a bird house. Some love on a mama, I hope it work out. I hope it work out. Luckily, my ex ugly. I don't eat, so she can't get no lunch with me. I don't reach, so she can't get in touch with me. Can't be buds with me, don't know what to be. She gon' cuss at me, told her give it a rest, so I keep custody. Keep it all side eyes and side hugs with me. I know that my girl's trust is a luxury. I don't want my next album sounding all ushery. But I must confess, I must confess. For every single ex, I want the best. I really wish you nothing but success. I know it's gonna work out. Doesn't it get dark right before the sun peaks and bears its face? The end you always feared is coming. And the blood will be on your hands. The fallout. Of all your good intentions. We'll get back to our top five films of the year so far in just a bit. That was Bad Guy Sean Harris in the trailer for Mission Impossible Fallout. It's out this weekend in theaters everywhere. We actually did just come from the movie. We're going to put off talking about the movie for at least a couple of days. We're going to process Fallout and those ridiculous, incredible Tom Cruise stunts before we really dive into it. That's exhausting. I just want to go to bed. I know. (laughs) Next week, though, you will hear our review of Mission Impossible Fallout, and we will pair that with a revisit, our top five Tom Cruise performances. We did that list in September 2017. We do encourage you, as always, to check out filmspotting.net 
slash events if you are in the Chicago area and you like to see free movies. Who doesn't like to see free movies? Josh, Monday, August 6th, there's a screening here in town of Lauren Greenfield's Generation Wealth did the great documentary Queen of Versailles. Again, that's filmspotting.net slash events to enter to win. Last week on the show, we shared our top five struggling adolescents And we had my interview with the writer-director of 8th grade, Bo Burnham. We also dabbled in a little terrible acting with Massacre Theater. You know, of course, that's where we perform a scene. You get a chance to win a film spotting T-shirt. It was really Mad Libs Massacre Theater. Yes, a little bit. Changed a lot of names, including the name of the film (laughs) that was part of that dialogue. We replaced it with brilliantly creative substitutes. I didn't write that. I didn't write the substitutes or that line. And they are also... Very good clues. Yes. So if you're having trouble, That's and you true. really shouldn't with that scene. No. But if you are having trouble, listen to the names. That'll get you there. And here you can go ahead and listen to a little bit of that terrible acting. If you missed it, here's a taste. Maybe Rudy already got to the police. Maybe Rudy is dead. Don't say that. Never say that. The fighting Irish never die. I'm not a fighting Irish. I want to go home. So if you know what film we massacred, you can email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, August 6th. Introduce a little anarchy. Upset the established order and everything becomes chaos. I'm an agent of chaos. Oh, and you know the thing about chaos... It's bear. Has the 10th anniversary of the Dark Knight bandwagon left the station? We're going to test that. We're going to get on board either way. That was Heath Ledger's Joker in Christopher Nolan's 2008 blockbuster. And probably fair to say this is the film that all superhero films made since 2008 have been living in the bat-shaped shadow of. We have been inspired by this anniversary and the good articles we've seen that have been written about it to do a sacred cow review of the Dark Knight a little bit sooner than we usually do sacred cows yeah. i would say maybe our most so 10th recent, anniversary yeah. but a 10th anniversary here we're also going to do a top five related maybe the top five superhero movies since the dark knight there have been a few there have been a few good probably ones. a lot to choose from maybe the top five think pieces about <laughs> dark knight's 10th anniversary we could do that that would be an easier one yes. to do just a little reading and we're also going to have a poll question related to all of this The best superhero movie of all time is? We're making it very simple. We're not giving you eight options and other. Well, we're maybe making it more complex by simplifying it, aren't we, Josh? You simply have two choices. The best superhero movie of all time is The Dark Knight or its other. Or something else. Any other superhero film. And as we pondered this with Sam in the waters of the Wisconsin River, I think all (laughs) our production meetings should take place standing about, you know, up to our ankles. Yeah. Let's not get too crazy yeah. in the with Wisconsin a, with River. With Glaris in oh, our hands. absolutely. We were leaning, at least you and I, towards, yes, it is. The Dark Knight is. That's where we're leaning right now. Leaning, yeah. Sam, not no. leaning that way, but he needs to revisit the film. As and will we. We will see how that all shakes out as we do have that 10th anniversary Sacred Cow review of The Dark Knight coming up. It's just an open week on the schedule, and we thought it made sense. So after Mission Impossible Fallout, we'll get to that. And then the following week, 
We'll talk about Spike Lee's Black Klansman. That is the plan right now. If you do want to check out the next three or four weeks of shows, you can always go to filmspotting.net and click on Episodes. We do try to keep that updated. Not only do you see the archive there, but you'll see the next three or four shows that we have penciled in. And I thought maybe worth mentioning, Josh, as we were walking here from our Mission Impossible screening, I saw a tweet from a listener who said, hey, what's the name of that Jake Johnson movie that Joe Swanberg directed that Bo Burnham talked about in the film Spotting Five last week? And the title was Win It All. But you can find that yourself if you want just by going to filmspotting.net. And if you click on lists, we do list every film that makes a top five list. We list all of the filmmaker and other artist answers to the Film Spotting Five. You can find the list of movies we've done Sacred Cow reviews of and so much more. Just go to filmspotting.net slash lists. And of course, we should mention where you can vote in that poll. It's at filmspotting.net right there on the main page. Just scroll down, not even halfway. You'll see the poll right there. You can make your choice for The Dark Knight or another superhero movie. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Hey, Cash, how much longer I got to wait for my money? God made this land for all of us. Greedy people like you want to hog it to yourself and your family. And- Me and my family? Yeah. Cash, I'm your f***ing uncle. Terry Crews and Lakeith Stanfield there in Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You, which is my number three film of the year so far. Adam, I missed the show where this got a full review. Michael Phillips joined you, and it was great to hear you guys praise this movie so much. You also mentioned my take. I did write about it on my website, so I appreciate that. And yeah, talked about my opinion of the ending a little bit, which... Just to clarify, I'm all in on the crazy twist (laughs) that it makes. It was more that, and happy ending is too strong of a word, but uh, more that for all the anger it had thrown at us and all the trouble, all the the provocation it had given us, I felt that last little bit took the air out of that anger um, in a way that, you know, didn't ruin anything. But I I, Obviously not. Yeah, it's at my number three for all the reasons... I'm going to get into now. And for one, it's just so funny. And again, I'll go back to that word, angry. It's angrily funny. Um, But it never like descends into some sort of bitterness that doesn't keep you along for the ride of craziness it delivers. I think the humor, for me at least, was part of what carried me through all of these not only insane developments but the the jarring tonal shifts even even some of the visual surprises that come the the way i experienced the movie i know some people have expressed hesitance because it's not say as polished as a film you might get straight out of hollywood a studio sure. film right i encountered this almost and performance art is Definitely a part of the film. Tessa Thompson's character is a performance artist, but I encountered also it like an annihilation on my list. Yes, yeah, she's having her. a really good year. Um, this was like a series of art installations, yeah. that Boots Riley put together, and they're loosely connected by the Lakeith Stanfield's character's experience. But really, these are a number of anti-capitalist artistic comedy pieces, sketches, and they all hit home for me. They all surprised me. They unnerved me. They unsettled me. They made me think about things that I'd taken for granted. And 
it was a great experience. I know you guys touched on Lakeith Stanfield's performance. I think that is a highlight as well. The way he can go from a guy who's trying to keep his head down. Stanfield, the way he talks is almost like he he wants to say something, but he doesn't want too many people to hear him. Yeah. And, and that's perfect for how Cassius is at the beginning, right? Just trying to find his way, not trying to attract too much attention. But then he goes the other direction when he gets promoted at this telemarketing firm and starts making it big and he gets broad and louder and more confident. And all the time we can feel that inner struggle that he still has inside Mm -hmm. that the Tessa Thompson character really does draw out of him. And I will say, you know, it's the particular racial identity politics that make sorry to bother you so special. And these are distinctions that obviously I can't speak to from experience, but the fact that Cassius is an African-American who is selling out in this capitalist marketplace has so many more implications for him that if he was just a lower class white guy. Mm -hmm. And, And this is something I'm just seeing in other works going on right now, particularly the work of Donald Glover and on Atlanta and Mm -hmm. elsewhere, just trying to figure out what does success mean, not only by the capitalist definition, but to my particular heritage. Mm -hmm. And in Cassius' case, it's really asking the question of what does selling out mean for a guy who, you know, it's acquiescence to a socioeconomic system that not too many generations ago, he would have been, he, his physical body would have been the product. And in some ways, sorry to bother you, literalizes that. That's funny. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. And that's completely of this moment. So this is a wild film. This is a film that is exciting in the ways that Spike Lee at his best has been. I think Bamboozled is a particular touch point for Sorry to Bother You, but it also goes off in its own insane directions that I loved. Yeah, it definitely does. I saw a thread about this movie on Twitter just a couple of nights ago. I don't remember who the writer was, but they pointed out the irony, the obvious intentional irony, I would say, of the line in the movie that's a common refrain to this telemarketing gig. He's constantly told to stick to the script. It's all about sticking to the script. Yeah. And Boots Riley, basically, with his film at every turn, does not stick to the script. <laughs> Very true. Right? He's constantly just taking it in new and crazy directions. So great choice there at number three. My number three is a movie that's come up already. Finished last in our poll, but I'm just glad it was part of the poll. It is the writer from director Chloe Zhao. The Experiment, I mentioned all of my films had an experiment there at its core. This one is blurring the line between nonfiction and fiction, but in a really subtle way, not in the way that we've maybe seen from filmmakers like Kiristami with a movie like Close Up. But this is a film that's about a young cowboy. He's an aspiring rodeo star, a very good writer who has a tragic accident. We don't actually see it. The movie opens with him having just suffered it. And we recognize that he really is struggling to get back to his former self and all that means physically, mentally, emotionally, but also just trying to then figure out where he goes from here. It's all he knows and it's all he loves. And the way that the truth and reality are blurred comes in the fact that Brady Jandro is the actor who plays the main character, Brady Blackburn, and he really is playing a version of himself. I learned this just today that the movie was actually inspired by the fact that she met him. 
She simply met him, Chloe Zhao, and said in this interview I read today, Josh, that I was pretty certain even within the first week that I met him that I could make a film with him. So this was during the shooting of her previous movie in 2015, Songs My Brothers Taught Me. They were shooting that. She met him and she said... I just had no idea what the film was going to be. I was so drawn to his presence and also just watching him interact with the environment around him from working with horses to talking to people. Somebody can just command your attention and they're just watchable. And he's like that. I was so eager to put a camera on him. And then when he got injured, there was finally a story that I felt was going to be good enough. So she had this idea just to make a movie with him because she was so drawn to his presence. And then unfortunately, he did suffer this terrible accident. And that was the impetus for Zhao to construct the story that we see that does incorporate not only Brady Jandro in his real life, but his sister, his father, his friend Lane to really heartbreaking effect. We talked about that a lot in our discussion of the film. And I certainly understand Zhao's impulse. I think I said in our previous poll, best performances of the year that I had Jandro in the top spot being just drawn to someone's presence Yes, there's a presence, but he also is acting, acting in a way that his father isn't in the film, acting in a way that you could even say his sister isn't in the film. He is giving us a performance, albeit a very subtle and very nuanced one that is obviously drawing on his own experiences. What the hell are you doing here? You're supposed to be up there in the hospital. I seen Tanner at the bar. He said you escaped, huh? Told you to check me out. The doctor said you're supposed to stay up there. Give me a hug. Why don't you go inside and sober up? Sober up? Let me see you rope that. Zhao really sensitively but sharply deconstructs conventional notions of American masculinity in this movie. And it's ultimately a film that is about one's purpose. What do you do when you are only experiencing, through no fault of your own, estrangement, and disillusionment. And as I was taking some of my notes today, Josh, I realized that it's not unlike another movie that was mentioned in our poll and that might just come up in our top two choices, a character who had a calling and then experiences that disillusionment. It's beautifully shot and paced like the film I'm hinting at almost in a transcendental fashion. It's a movie that really does invite us to observed longer shots a few longer takes here and there, but also can give us some flourishes like the one where we see Jandro. I think it's about halfway through the film and he's been training this horse. He can't do the rodeo riding anymore, but we see him get on the horse and the camera just slowly tracks with him as the sun is at the magic hour. It's just fading in the background. This great landscape, the camera following him as the horse breaks into a trot and you just realize it's what Zhao said about him drawn to his presence and watching him interact with the environment around him. That's what we're seeing there, the joy and the pleasure that comes from someone doing exactly what they seem to have been put on this earth to do. Yeah, and that's what's happening in my favorite scene from the film where he is training the horse and he's in the corral and the camera just again, it becomes transcendental because it just sits there on him and lets the motions, his natural rhythms and the animals all come together and create something really special. It's a yeah. special film. It is. It right now is, I think, our top golden brick contender currently. Probably, Zhao, yeah. a new filmmaker to me completely. You had seen her previous film, but otherwise a movie that does check all the boxes of our golden brick criteria. You can see it coming up 
August 7th. If you didn't catch it when it was out in release, it will be on DVD and iTunes and I'm sure elsewhere here in just a few weeks. Now, we are at our final two choices for the best film of the year. And somehow, well, we did have two overlap last year, but we have overlap at the top Mm -hmm. of our list this year. We differ slightly on the ranking, but we have the same two films. So, Josh, you are going to do the honor. This is your number one. Yes. It's my number two. And it is, and this still, I just get a smile on my face when I found out that you had it I love how much it joy this brings it's, you. I'm so happy that you have Isle of Dogs at number two, and yes, it is my number one. We heard, you know, Lucy in the poll comments really nailed, yeah, like, she nailed it. all of the elements, and particularly, I'm glad she mentioned the raising of the stop motion bar, because when I saw that comment, I did... You know, we haven't done like a top five stop motion films, right? I don't think we have. No, no, they all do start to blur together. We did but a traditional animation. Yeah, top we did five. that. That's right. But so we I have guess not. Done. Was that what it was? Was it stop motion based? No, I think we were doing like cell animation yeah. at that point. Yeah, we were. So I think she might be right, though. I mean, the level of intricacy, no surprise that Anderson and his team, all of the animators he's working with here and the puppeteers and the production designers. I mean, that's just it. Every element of cinema is brought to bear on this stop motion from the lighting to the production design, to the costume design, to the performances. We, we talked about when we did our voice acting top five, how good some of the vocal performances are here. It really is probably the pinnacle of stop motion. And it is a genre that I love and have seen a lot of. So it has that going for it. And the craft alone would put it on my list, but man, I, I gotta say, Like in the last month of political news Mm -hmm. that we have had here in the U.S., and I know uh, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II is a different scenario of what is taking place at the border of the United States right now, the U.S.-Mexico border. But the underlying ideas, the fact that we even have to have a conversation about whether or not children are in cages after just seeing a movie a few months earlier that is very much about characters being displaced and put in cages just the political resonance of this thing is so much more powerful in those few months and i do think um you know this is something that i'm still wrestling in with and thinking about because i know that there were a lot of and we talked about it the cultural appropriation charges against isle of dogs and i think Those are arguments that deserve their day and deserve their hearing. But as I said in our initial review, I do think that the Japanese setting is exactly what gives the movie this sort of subversive political power. It was absolutely why I started thinking about America's awful past in this way Mm -hmm. and exactly why I was doubly horrified when I saw hints of it returning in the contemporary present. And so I think that the cultural elements to Isle of Dogs are crucial to its political significance today. Again, yeah. others with different backgrounds than mine who read it differently completely respect that take. But to me, at the midpoint of the year, this movie is even more important. Well, it's pretty remarkable as you bring up the way it overlaps with some contemporary American issues. This came out back in March, and we talked about its political resonance then, how timely it felt. And that was before the direct crisis that has been in the news for the past at least three or four weeks, maybe longer, Mm -hmm. right, Josh, has been so pervasive. And now you're right. It just feels like 
it's even more clear the connection, tragically. And yes, my number two, the experiment with this film, among others you might be able to point to, does come down to that cultural question. The fact that it's set in Japan, that its main characters are dogs, that they're subtitled. The Japanese speakers are not subtitled. So we don't know the words they're saying. There has been a lot of really good stuff written on that topic from the perspective of Japanese Americans who do take issue with that. I do want to point out one article that I saw on The New Yorker. I'll link to it in our show notes at filmspotting.net. The writer Moeko Fuji wrote what Isle of Dogs gets right about Japan and says language is power. Isle of Dogs knows this. It shows the seams of translation and demarcates a space that is accessible and funny only to Japanese viewers. One of the most potent shots in the film is of graffiti on gray cement. A large black scrawl asks, and I apologize for what I'm going to do to this phrase, do yate bokura wo korosu sumori? How on earth do you plan on killing us? For most viewers, it's a mark on the wall. For Japanese ones, it's a battle cry. Hmm. So worth the read, especially if you've read some of the counter arguments. When we did have our feet in the Wisconsin River having a production meeting, I mentioned to you and Sam that there are a lot of ways we could have grouped films together for this list. Michael Phillips connected on our show, The Writer, and Lean on Pete and Leave No Trace, these really kind of small films that deal with characters on the fringes, very much about class in their own ways. And then I mentioned how... Did you wonder who fired the gun and sorry to bother you and Black Panther and the King are about race? Well, Isle of Dogs, I think you could fit in perfectly as a trifecta, Josh, with Won't You Be My Neighbor, the documentary about Fred Rogers and Paddington 2, that ask this question, the question that is at the core of Isle of Dogs, the question that, as you'll recall from our review, was the moment where I really found myself connecting with Wes Anderson's movie, who are we and who do we want to be? It's funny. It's sad. It's sophisticated. It's silly. It's political. And it's beautifully crafted. And I'm just as surprised as you are, really, that it's near the top of my list. <laughs> well, and to speak to that phrase and the language translation issue, which, again, I feel is very purposeful, that's the only line Atari, the boy, the main character, utters in English in the whole film. Who are we? Yeah. So it's directed to English speakers. And For sure. I think that speaks volumes. Isle of Dogs, DVD and Blu-ray release date. What I see here, it just came out a week ago. I believe that's true. No, that right? sounds right. Okay, yeah, July I know 17th. it was streaming a little earlier, so I bet it is out now on DVD. Yeah, Amazon Video and iTunes was back on June 26th. There you go. So you can see Isle of Dogs if you haven't already, which then means we're at my number one, your number two, it is the movie that finished second in our listener poll question for the best film of the year. It's Paul Schrader's first reformed, a movie that stars Ethan Hawke as the Reverend Ernst Toller. He is the pastor at a very small parish, Dutch Reformed Church in upstate New York, and he gets caught up in... I think, as Schrader put it, the spiritual malaise of a member of his flock, Amanda Seyfried, plays a woman who's married to a radical environmentalist. She's pregnant with their child, and this man does not want to bring that child into this doomed world. And as the Reverend Toller tries to work with him through that problem, he finds himself then afflicted with that same malaise. And to help us do the honors with this choice, we have regular top five contributor, 
from Ferndale, Michigan, Jeff Milo. Hey, film spotting. It's Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan, and uh, we're talking about the best film of the year so far. I keep telling people that First Reformed is my favorite film of the year, uh, but then I quickly warn them that it it's probably bleaker than than what they might prefer. Uh, but when I tell them about the premise, um, the conversation instantly gets interesting. This prospect of a, a priest being so rattled by the confessions of a, an environmentalist that he questions whether God will forgive us for what we've done to uh, his creation. Um, and I love movies that send me back uh, out into the world with a head full of questions. Um, and and the, the keep you up at night notion of, of not worrying whether God can forgive you for your own sins, but can he forgive us as a collective? Um for our complicit uh, guilt here. All right, great job, guys. The experiment with Schrader's film, could the guy who wrote the book on transcendental cinema finally make a transcendental film? And could a filmmaker so thoroughly combine all of his influences? We talked about this with Schrader on the show. Ordet, Winter Light, is the core structure of this film, that Bergman film, Diary of a Country Priest, the Brisson film. Combine all those influences and still make a movie that's pulsating. Bear with me as I drop a bunch of P words here, Josh. Peacant, political, personal. It's all of those things. Look at powerful. that alliteration. I just threw powerful in just a bonus P. Holy cow. It is also a movie that seems timely in its concerns and eternal. Jesus didn't want our suffering. He suffered for us. Mm-hmm. He wants our commitment and our obedience. Mm-hmm. And what of his creation? The heavens declare the glory of God. God is present everywhere in every plant, every river, every tiny insect. The whole world is a manifestation of his holy presence. I think this is an issue where, where the church can lead, but, but they say nothing. The, the U.S. Congress still denies climate change? Where were we when these people were elected? In that scene there, you hear Hawks, Reverend Toller, with Cedric Kyle, Cedric the Entertainer, who has some authority over him in the parish, runs his own bigger church. And I love the fact that Schrader, I'm sure, working directly with Kyle's on this move, if you watch as he's listening to Toller start to rant a little bit, get on his soapbox, he literally turns his back on him. He slowly turns the chair around (laughs) because— it represents what Hawk sees the church doing. Sure. Right? He is choosing to live in denial about what we're all doing to the planet and what the church in particular has decided not to do. They're not going to get involved in that struggle. Hawk's performance, one of the best of the year, one of the best of his career, not merely a gloomy and depressed character, but someone who is weary. And you still see in him the spark that drew him to this line of work. You see the contradiction of someone becoming more unhinged and more exhausted as the film goes on while also becoming more engaged in the world around him in a way that he wasn't before, which as I think about it, Josh kind of sounds like maybe another famous Paul Schrader protagonist. That being of course, Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. I still think you see the intensity in his eyes. He's alive. But that crease in Hawk's forehead. If Ethan Hawk wins Best Actor at the Oscars this year, 
that crease should get best supporting actor <laughs> because it is so <laughs> profoundly deep and grooved into his skull that he seems to be splitting in two right before our eyes, which the character Reverend Toller is. Yeah, there are points where he's almost unrecognizable in this movie. And part of that, I think, also is the position of the camera, how Schrader just kind of bears it down on him, Mm -hmm. sometimes directly from above, but even when it's level with him, it's just like interrogating his despair. It's, It's putting it right there at the forefront. I think also Hawk sells this really bravura, risky, and for me, hugely successful ending. Yeah. And we have not really, I don't know if we want to kind of dig into this now or I don't try know that to I'm do. To. Okay. I definitely need to see the movie again. It's, I, I've seen it twice now. And this is another one like Annihilation. I've enjoyed the writing on this movie hugely, especially as it pertains towards the ending. I'll, I'll just say now, and maybe we'll get to do it later, but without giving any details away, I'm pretty confident I lean towards vision and at the same time completely buy any other argument that's offered because okay. there are there are a handful of really tantalizing possibilities of what's happening in those final moments and I think there is evidence put there by Schrader for almost all of the arguments. I have my own personal favorite, but again, like Annihilation, that's one of the wonderful things about this movie is the different takeaways people are having, all in appreciation of what Schrader and his actors have been able to do. Yeah. It's coming out on Amazon and iTunes July 31st, if you haven't seen it yet, and then later DVD and Blu-ray release date is set for August 21st. Those are our top five films of the year so far. Josh, you want to quickly recap your choices? Yeah. So at the top for me is Isle of Dogs, number one. Then I went with First Reformed in the second slot. The list is filled out by Sorry to Bother You, Lucretia Martel Zama, and then Game Night. Yeah. And we just reversed the top two choices. I had First Reformed in the top slot, Isle of Dogs, followed by The Writer at number three, Annihilation at number four, and Did You Wonder Who Fired the Gun? That experimental doc in the fifth slot. We will list these choices over at filmspotting.net. If you want to revisit them, just click on lists and you will find it there. What about some honorable mentions? You said that this was kind of your first stab at what a top 10 might look like if the year ended right now. I did the same. So I'm curious what just missed the cut. Yeah. So at number six right now, I have Leave No Trace, which was briefly mentioned a quiet film, a humble film, but in its own way, a deeply moving one. Hereditary is there at seven. It's really strong. I want to watch it again because I had some questions about the ending and I wonder if it would bother me less a second time. Paddington 2, it made the list. So yes, I love The Bear. The Rider is on my list as well. I've got it number nine. And then Lean on Pete. A pair of horse movies there at the end. Lean on Pete would be my number 10 if the year ended today. So we have some crossover. And of course, we are going to throw out the disclaimer that all of these rankings could radically shift in December. Don't hold us to any of these. Of course. There's a lot in flux, but I've got Paddington 2 just outside my top five. It's at number six. The Death of Stalin at number seven, a great comedy from Armando Iannucci. And I teased, I think last week, that it had by far one of the best performances of the year. Was it Jeffrey Tambor or was it Simon Russell Beale? It's Simon Russell Beale as Nikita Khrushchev. You have to see The Death of Stalin just to see his performance. At number eight, I've got the Morgan Neville documentary, Would You Be My Neighbor? One of those films I suggested should be paired with Paddington 2. There's a lot 
to unpack and talk about with that film. I wonder if we'll get a chance at some point down the road. Lean on Pete's at number nine and Bo Burnham's eighth grade is my number 10, though Leave No Trace was right there in the mix as well. Two more titles. The art house movie I'm apparently not showing enough love to. You were never really here. And the mainstream movie I'm apparently not showing enough love to by having it outside my top 10 is A Quiet Place, but both movies I recommend. And I will throw out as well an HBO film that I really do admire and recommend if people have a chance to see it. It's long, but thank goodness it's long because Judd Apatow needed all that time to dive into the career and life and legacy of Gary Shandling, the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. Again, those are our top five films of the year so far and more. We'd love to hear your choices. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. At filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives, and you can also vote in the Film Spotting poll. Right now, we're asking, what is the best superhero movie of all time, The Dark Knight or Other? And if you haven't already, please do check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show. You can find it through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. Out in wide release this weekend, Mission Impossible, Fallout, and Teen Titans Go to the movies. What What is this? I have I, no I, idea. Okay. Well, I have no idea. Let's just and, move on then. You, you we said really that with to... such authority that I thought <laughs> well, you were there's an, an exclamation point in there. Oh. Okay. Teen Titans Go to the movies. And... This is one of those cases where Sam having some kind of pithy descriptor afterwards would have helped. But listeners can probably guess which of those two movies we're going to talk about on next week's show. (laughs) If you missed the part where we said it earlier, it will be Christopher McQuarrie's Mission Impossible, the sixth installment in that franchise. And we will revisit our top five Tom Cruise performances. Oh, there will be running. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogger. And without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant, that's Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Please give us a review if you've got a few spare minutes. You can do that on Apple Podcasts. A rating also helps. That way we can find new listeners. Our music this week is from Chance the Rapper. More information is at ChanceRaps.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.